Hi, you're listening to the Law & Blockchain Podcast. This is your host, Amy Wan. The Law & Blockchain Podcast is part of the To the Extent That podcast series by the American Bar Association Business Law Section. The ABA Business Law Section podcasts provide general information and are not a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ABA Business Law at AmericanBar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. We have an exciting guest here today. We have Brian Brooks, who is Chief Legal Officer at Coinbase. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me. So Coinbase, for those of you who don't know, but but I'm sure everyone in the space does, it's an $8 billion Silicon Valley startup that is one of the largest digital currency platforms in the world. At Coinbase, Brian is responsible for the company's legal, compliance, internal audit, government relations, and global intelligence groups. Previously, Brian has served as executive vice president general counsel and corporate secretary of Fannie Mae and vice chairman of One West Bank. He has a much longer bio that you'll see on the website, but you know, for obvious reasons, if I if I read the entire thing now, it, it'd go on for 20 minutes because he's incredibly accomplished. So Brian, there's there's so much that we can talk about. How did you end up joining Coinbase and how has that been similar or different from working in more traditional financial institutions? Well, you know, Amy, I get that question a lot. <clears throat> and I think uh, I think it presupposes that there's a big distinction between what uh, what we do in the world of cryptocurrency and, and traditional finance. Uh, and the truth is we see cryptocurrency as the natural evolution of finance, much as, you know, email was the natural evolution of communications. So, you know, we think this is an extension. It's a new version of things that have been going on for a while. But in terms of how I got there, um, it, it's, it's sort of funny. When I was at Fannie Mae, I kind of fell in love with financial technology or fintech, as people call it. And, uh, you know, my boss, the CEO of Fannie Mae, and I uh, helped incubate a fintech platform approach at Fannie Mae, where we went to the West Coast and we met all of the disruptors in housing finance and real estate and started inviting them to build things on top of our platform because Fannie Mae was the biggest platform in, in housing finance. That taught me a couple things. One is it taught me the kinds of innovation that were going on in, in financial technology. And it also told me the value of being at the platform company where you could incubate lots of other innovation on a, on a single platform that had wide distribution, just like, like Fannie Mae did. Coinbase, at a much smaller scale, is the platform for its asset class the same way that Fannie Mae is the most important platform for housing finance. And so that was the first thing that attracted me was the idea that they serve a similar role in their ecosystem. If, if Coinbase adopts an approach, if Coinbase adopts a rule or a listing framework, it's very likely that that will become the standard throughout the year. And so it's a position of enormous responsibility, which I take really seriously here like I did at Fannie Mae. So that was, that was a big part of it was realizing the innovation of fintech and realizing the value of the platform, both of which we have in spades here at Coinbase. But the other funny personal story is when I was thinking about coming back out to the West Coast, having, having been in Washington for the last four years, it turned out that a good friend of mine and a former colleague of mine from One West Bank had become the CFO of Coinbase. And so I had a real comfort level knowing that she was here and we'd be able to get our band back. That's so funny. What a small world. <laughs> It is, it is. Well, I think the interesting thing about crypto exchanges is that you guys have to deal with a lot of perhaps regulatory uncertainty, um, a lot of novelty. So what would you say are the greatest legal regulatory challenges that face crypto exchanges today? 
Well, there are several, uh, Amy, that I want to tick through, but I begin by saying the, the real challenge is that, as in any innovative area, it's all about kind of fitting square pegs into round holes. You know, the, the world of financial regulation is, is old and it assumes a traditional set of products and institutions. And one of the biggest challenges we have that, that underpins everything I'm about to say is the idea that uh, regulators and enforcement agencies are always asking how do we comply with banking law or with insurance law or with securities law. And the problem is we're not a bank and we're not an insurance company. We don't issue securities. So it's not obvious that those are the right rubrics. Having said that, the things that we're working on at the moment that are you know, the, the biggest, uh, I don't want to say impediments because I think we're solving these, but, but that take the most work are the following. So first of all, I would say there's the issue of securities law treatment and specifically the Securities Act of 1933. Um, as I think everybody on an ABA podcast will know, the Securities Act of 1933 and, and its case law underneath that defines which kinds of financial assets are securities such that they have to be registered with the SEC, such that certain disclosures have to be made and, and the like. And the issue in crypto is that uh, most crypto tokens were not designed to be securities. Um, many of them don't have a central company that is the issuer of, of the token that could report if it wanted to. And generally speaking, the whole idea is decentralization. So there is no one company whose efforts are generating the value, at least in, in many cases. Nonetheless, the SEC has, uh, has given a lot of guidance, but hasn't been able to say or been willing to say which specific tokens are securities and which aren't. And that has chilled investment in this space for some time. Uh, when I first got here, one of our biggest challenges I confronted was how do we achieve a process for assessing which of these things are securities and which aren't so that we can list the non-securities on our platform and, and do so in compliance with, with law. What we came up with was a scorecard, which is much like the Motion Picture Association for crypto, if you will, where you know, since we're not the SEC, we can't definitively say which things are securities, but kind of like the way the Motion Picture Association is able to tell the difference between R-rated moves and PG-rated moves, we were able to come up with a very repeatable, very objective process for figuring out which are the PGs and which are the R's. And it's kind of exciting, Amy, since we're talking today on, uh, on uh, September 30th, uh, this very morning we publicly rolled out this framework with a consortium of other companies um, uh, called the Crypto Rating Council. And the purpose of the Crypto Rating Council is to be the trusted validator that will let the world know which things weren't. So that clears the way for people to know where the safe legal space is for crypto within the Securities Act and allow us to really scale that up without committing inadvertent footfalls and then getting in trouble under the securities law. So that's a big one, I would say. There are some other things that are a little bit more detailed and, and probably beyond the scope of a podcast, but I can just identify some of them. So, you know, examples would be in the world of derivatives, there are certain rules that, uh, that govern when uh, positions have to be closed out and those positions, uh, def those definitions of those rules are built around the idea that there's a bag of wheat or a barrel of oil to be delivered at the end of a, der a derivatives transaction somewhere. And the problem in crypto is there is no barrel of oil. There is no bag of wheat. These are digital assets. It's a little bit difficult to translate those rules into a world where the asset itself is not a physical object, but is a computer code. So translation of old rules into this modern context is, is a little bit of a challenge. And you see a similar thing in the world of custody, where, um, you know, for SEC purposes, if you're, a, if you're an asset man, like a hedge fund or a mutual fund, and you're going to, uh, you're going to custody an asset for somebody else, you have to be able to show that you have a good location where you can control that thing. 
And again, those rules were written in a day where people were custodying physical stock certificates or works of art or antique cars, you know, physical objects that could be located in a place. But again, that's not what cryptocurrency is. And so trying to modernize those rules so that they make sense in a world that is purely digital and natively digital, those are all big challenges. A lot of other things too, like you see in any startup, but, uh, but I would say those are the big ones to crypto land. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot to unpack there. I want to jump back for a moment to custody because I think this has been a very big issue. And in fact, even at the last um, ABA annual meeting where there were different task forces on various aspects of cryptocurrency, you know, tokenized securities, things like that, um, custody is a, it's a topic that, that kept coming up. And so I, I think there's a discussion that needs to be had around, you know, do we need different laws and regulations around the custody of digital assets? Or, or maybe even the better question is, do we need laws and regulations around that sort of custody period? Because, you know, I, I think there's a certain group of folks who argue that all these custodians should be RIAs and they should be qualified custodians. And then there's, there's definitely a strong contingent that feels otherwise. Yes. Well, look, so this is a great question. Um, you know, we're in early days of cryptocurrency uh, markets. And so one of the reasons the custody question is such an important question is that we have to get investors comfortable with the idea that their assets are real and that they're safe and they'll be there when called upon, right? So all of those things that have existed for generations in the traditional security side need to be shored up in the world of crypto so that uh, you know investment can flow in feeling like there's certainty around the framework. So I think that's why that's such a great question. Um, here, I would tell you there's several specific issues around custody uh, that are a little bit complicated, but are, but are important to understand if you want to understand the area. Probably the most important one has to do with what the SEC considers to be a qualified custodian. Uh, and that's a defined concept in the Investment Advisors Act. So if you're an investment advisor, which is to say if you're a hedge fund manager managing a mutual fund or something like that, um, you have to have the assets that you're taking third-party money for, you have to have the assets secured somewhere um, where they can be seen and surveilled and looked at and, and know that they're available at all. That's the concept. And in the world of traditional securities, the definition of a qualified custodian includes a broker dealer like a, you know, a Merrill Lynch or something, or a bank like Bank of New York Mellon. Um, and those are easy to see. In the world of crypto, it's a little bit more complicated because generally speaking, the SEC has not yet licensed any broker dealers to perform custody services for crypto. So even if you had an exchange that was trading crypto, the, the broker-dealer that was doing that can't legally custody that asset. And part of it is because of the SEC's stated view that they want the custodians to be outside of the broker-dealer. Part of that is just a post-financial crisis that they don't want the assets to blow up if the firm blows up. You know, that was one you saw in Lehman Brothers. So, they want to... so since it can't be in a broker-dealer, the alternative is for it to be in a bank. Except the problem there is that national banks uh, that are regulated by the Office of the Controller of the Currency haven't yet been authorized to conduct custody services for crypto in particular. And so that leaves you with a funny little niche of companies that meet the definition of a bank inside of this qualified custodian rule. And those funny little companies are state chartered trust companies. So that is Coinbase's for custody is we have the largest um, uh, New York licensed trust company in the crypto industry. It has about seven and a half billion dollars of crypto assets under custody today. And we believe that that company is probably the only company at the moment or the only kind of company that meets the qualified custodian test. Um, you need more of those, to be honest. I mean, of course, we want to 
we want to win this market and we'll be a leading provider in that space. But in order for the ecosystem to grow, um, investors need to see that there's a robust set of companies doing that business. And the good news is that there are more and more that are coming into the space and getting these state chartered trust companies. So that's, that's the good news. Even then, there's still this question that I adverted to a minute ago about whether anybody can get good custody of, of a digital asset because the digital asset isn't a physical asset. And so when the regulators and auditors come in and they want to they want to see the asset, you know, sort of like show me the stock certificate, show me the work of art that is uh, that is securing this this financial asset, you know, we we can't show that to them because it's in a computer code and we can't let it be hacked. Which brings me to maybe the last most important thing about custody in addition to these regulatory issues and that is because these are computer codes and because you know this stuff is not insured by FDIC insurance, so if it's lost from the exchange, it's lost forever. Um, investors need to get comfortable with the idea that their assets are safe and protected in, in some way, even more than they need to feel that when they go to the bank you know, to deposit traditional cash. Right. And so at Coinbase, you know, we have some solutions for that. I mean, one is we have a, a patented process uh, of cold storage. In the world of crypto, there's, there's hot storage, which is you know, codes that are stored in a, in a device attached to the internet. And then there's cold storage, which means something that's not attached to the internet and thus can't be accessed by a third-party hacker. But we took cold storage a step further. So we, we, we deployed a process known as sharding, where you take various pieces of the what's called the private key, which is the access code used to get at the digital code that represents the crypto. And sharding is where you store pieces of the code in different locations. So even if one of your uh, custodian locations were to be invaded uh, or blown up in a, in a, in a you know, disaster of some kind, that can't compromise the underlying crypto because you would have to reassemble the private key from a piece of code held in Singapore and a piece of code held in San Francisco and a piece of code held elsewhere, all of them at rotating undisclosed locations. So we try to provide physical security confidence in that way. And then, of course, we were also the first crypto exchange to have uh, meaningful insurance coverage such that if, if a code were to be lost, there's something standing behind that asset beyond just promise. But you know, Amy, the, the beauty of your question is there are many, many layers of the custody puzzle. And, uh, and what we've tried to do is to nail each of those layers. in. Fascinating. I'm going to ask you about insurance really quickly, actually, because I was actually on the phone with a custodian last week, and they told me that uh, the insurance policy that they have is really only for negligence. Um, and they had told me that, I guess, um, very few insurers are, are willing to offer anything um, more protective than that. Um, is, is that what Coinbase has or do you guys have, you know, something a step up? Yeah, no. So Coinbase has a commercial crimes policy, which is rare in the industry. And one of the reasons that insurers are not excited always about issuing those policies is they need to get very, very comfortable with your level of physical security. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, I don't want to say we're the only ones that have this, but we were the first and we think we have the largest and most comprehensive coverage of, of criminal acts. So, you know, again, it, the, the, the worry here is not, not only that, uh, you know, somehow something will be inadvertently lost or, or that an earthquake will cause your system to go down. The risk is that there are hackers and bad guys. You mm -hmm. saw that with Mount Gox and other players, other various kinds of uh, failures or with that Canadian exchange where you had their codes go missing. We're covered for criminal activity, not just negligence. And we think that anybody who's investing in a space would get comfortable that their custodian's policy covers all. Let's jump back to your, your new crypto rating council for a quick second. How did that come about? And how did you go about getting the collaboration from all these 
different companies and, and have you been in uh, discussions with, with the regulators about what you guys are doing? Yeah, it's a great question. So look, when I, when I first got here, the way I tell the story is Coinbase uh, on, on my first day at the company, and I've been here a little more than a year, was the biggest US exchange. But we had fallen from being the biggest exchange in the world to being something like way, way less than this exchange in the world. And one of the reasons was because the US legal environment was so ambiguous with respect to securities law compliance that we just weren't comfortable adding assets because we didn't want to even come close to violating the law. The way the law works, as I'm sure you know, is that securities can only trade on a registered national security exchange. And there isn't a company in the United States that has that designation for crypto. So we couldn't trade those assets. We didn't want to get close to a line and we didn't know where the line was. So we sort of stood where we were. And my mandate from Brian Armstrong, our, our founder was find me a way to comply with the law, but also allows me to scale faster. I mean, that's kind of the holy grail of any Silicon Valley startup. And so I sat down with our legal team who has a bunch of brilliant minds on it. I mean, this I really do believe is pound for pound the best group of lawyers in this industry. And we noodled on this for quite a while. And what the team came up with was the idea that even if we couldn't be totally certain, we could put these tokens on a spectrum from one to five, where one is Bitcoin and five is a security. And we could figure out, is a given asset closer to Bitcoin or is it closer to a security? And then we could set a risk tolerance and decide how high up the scale were we still willing to list an asset. So... Once we came up with that and we built a tool that was objective and repeatable, meaning any two people running the tool are going to get very close to the same answer every time they run the tool. Once we got that, we started going in as we would list new tokens and we would meet with SEC and we would tell them, hey, we're about to list asset X and it gets a score of three on our five point scale, which we believe is lawful. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to launch that puppy and we would do that. And then we would have conversations with the SEC where we'd say, okay, now here's a token. This is a four on a five-point scale. This, this has more indicia of a security than other assets do. And there are some fours that we won't list because it's a little bit riskier and, and we don't see the market reasons for doing it. But in the case of this four-rated asset, we, we think there are real reasons why it isn't a five. In other words, it's not a security. And also there are important market reasons for bringing this asset to market. So we're going to go ahead and list it. And I don't want to suggest that the SEC agreed with our listing decision in every case uh, at all. But what was interesting was to see that on both sides of that table, people started using the language of the one to five scale. It became part of the vernacular. And once I saw that, I realized this thing is much more valuable, not as a Coinbase proprietary tool, but as an industry utility where the legitimate credible players in the space have a common language for operationalizing guidance and coming to the right out. And so with that in mind, I just started picking up the phone and calling leaders of some of the largest and most credible exchanges and investors and custodians to say, hey, we could benefit from your thoughts. And I think we could all benefit from having a common compliance framework. So we're not guessing about the law. And a side benefit of that is once we do that, we can say to the world, hey, it's not as uncertain and ambiguous as we thought. We think we've nailed this. We think that the SEC's guidance is clear enough that if we put it inside of this tool, we can figure it out. And that's where the consortium was born. It was the idea that it's not as uncertain as we had thought, that there's a way of dealing with the regulators where, you know, whether they agree or disagree, they at least now have a common language with us for understanding what's going on. And we have a process that protects us from intentional legal violation. Um, and it's scalable. So all of those things are great. And I'm very proud of the consortium members um, who really are, as I say, several of the biggest exchanges in the United States, a couple of the most important investors in the country, a couple of major custodians. Um, I, I think what we're doing is building a legal infrastructure on which industry can really grow. And that pretty much answers my question about how do you handle legal and regulatory strategy? <laughs> um, well, 
Well, tell me this. What is Coinbase's relationship with regulators look like? And what should be the industry's relationship with regulators? Well, so, so you know, you, you'll get a bunch of different view, viewpoints on this. But as you mentioned at the top of this, you know, I've spent virtually my entire career representing regulated financial institutions. And I spent most of my career in Washington uh, working with some of the people who are now the regulators. And if there's one thing I have come to understand, it is that you're not going to get anything right 100% of the time. And so trying to build something where you can guarantee your regulators you'll never make a mistake uh, is a fool's error. What you can do, however, is you can, first of all, build process so that even if you make a mistake, everybody understands that the mistake was the result of a process, which can always be made better, but it was not the result of negligence or malfeasance or um, you know, intentional misconduct. That's the first thing you do. Process is really king. And then the other thing you can be is highly transparent. You can let them know what you're doing before you do it so that they're aware and can comment. And even if they don't comment in the room, they can comment over time about what. So I will tell you that before we rolled out this, uh, this, this uh, framework that we announced this morning, this Crypto Ratings Council framework, uh, the entire consortium flew to Washington, D.C., and we had a couple of dozen meetings with policymakers on Capitol Hill of both parties in both the House and the Senate. We met with both SEC staff and multiple SEC commissioners. And again, I, I wouldn't suggest any of these people endorse what we're doing, but I do believe that the best practice is to be very upfront about what it is, be very transparent, and to make very clear for any given issue, we're not here to avoid the law, we're not here to deregulate ourselves, but we're trying to come up with self-help ways to comply with the rules you've set for us. And this is what we've come up with. I think that's a good model for engagement. Right. Let me ask you this. What is one piece of advice you'd give to legal professionals that are counseling digital asset clients in the space? And I'm going to throw an additional wrench into here. You know, Coinbase, we all look up to Coinbase in the industry. It's, it's huge. It's powerful. It's, it's got a lot of very smart people behind it. Um, many other crypto or token-related companies are much smaller and, and, and lack a lot of resources. Um, and so when you are saddled with you know, the regulatory soup of regulators and on top of it, figuring out how to navigate all these legal and regulatory waters, it can be quite the exercise, right? So, so what would you say to these attorneys who are trying to help the smaller companies in the space? Yeah, well, look, it's another great question. And I, I would just begin even before I answer it by saying that, um, you know, I don't think of us as saddled with regulation. My, my view is one of the reasons that the U.S. has had the most liquid capital markets for generations at this point is precisely because historically we've had regular clear regulation. So investors knew that if they committed a dollar to the U.S. market, they knew that they were getting disclosure about the company that was meaningful. They knew that there would be CIPIC protection in the event that the broker-dealer failed. They knew that there was FDIC insurance at the bank. I mean, all of those things were what was necessary for capital to flow in. So I don't think of regulation as a burden uh, at least certainly not always a burden. I, I think regulation that is clear is what allows markets to, uh, you Fair know, point. Part, part of the role. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Having said that, my, my advice to uh, lawyers working in the space is, is several fold. I mean, some of it's specific to crypto and some of it's just advice from a general counsel to an outside lawyer, having, having played both roles in my life. So one is, this is an area of great uncertainty. Uh, still. I mean, I think we might have cracked the securities law code, but there are a lot of other issues out there that haven't been resolved yet. And so the kinds of lawyers that I trust the most are the lawyers who don't come into my office making pronouncements like this is what the law is, because the truth is nobody knows what the law is here. 
right? So it's more about, as I said, <laughs> building process and frameworks because nobody has passed the you know, American Crypto Regulation Act yet. So, <laughs> so the first thing is some amount of humility that is not, as, not sort of you know, giving me prescriptive rules, but is understanding my world and helping me develop frameworks. That's one thing I love. A second thing that I would say is that um, uh, uh, you know, we value problem solvers o- over issue spotters any day of the week. And I think one of the biggest challenges for lawyers who are representing tech companies, there are fewer lawyers inside the company as compared to other kinds of clients. And so oftentimes when you're a lawyer, you might be dealing not with the general counsel, but dealing with the product manager or, or you know, some other business person who's typically relatively young. That's the nature of tech is that these are entrepreneurs who aren't spending 20 years inside of big companies. And what they need, the reason they're calling you is they need help. They don't need an education. So they're not always looking for the eight reasons why this is regulated and is impossible to succeed. And what they're looking is for is a brilliant out-of-the-box way of taking your expertise and advocating for what they need. And that's uncomfortable for many lawyers. So I think you have to change your, uh, your, your view on that. And then the last thing I guess I would say to people who are seeking to practice in this area is um, relationships really matter. And, and part of that is because since the law is not that well settled, we need people who can walk into meetings with the state banking commissioner or the chairman of the SEC or, you know, other influencers in the policy world and be, and be credible with those. And, and you know, I, I give this advice to lawyers outside of this context all the time too, but it's even more true in the of tech startups. Relationships are ultimately where decisions are made. That's where trust is built. And it's not enough simply to be right. You have to both be right and credible. And credible comes from knowing the people, having built trust with people. Uh, And so for people, especially on the earlier side of their careers who might be listening here, I would tell you doing a good job on the assignments your partners are giving you is important, but it is not sufficient. What is really important is that you get out of your office on a regular basis and go to the conferences and go to the trade association meeting and go to the think tanks and get to, if I can find all of those qualities in a single lawyer, that's the person I That is fantastic. I love, I love that advice. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, where can people find and follow you? Well, I love, um, I love followers and I do try to um, kind of publicly advocate for what we do as well as having these kinds of conversations. So first of all, I encourage everybody to follow my Twitter handle, which is Brian Brooks CB. That's for Coinbase. Brian Brooks CB on Twitter is great. Uh, and of course, my LinkedIn. Um, and I never know how to describe my LinkedIn um, handle other than to say, if you look for Brian Brooks Coinbase LinkedIn, you'll get me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm always happy to support and talk to and network with people who are in this field. So please reach out. uh, And I'd love to have a relationship. Fantastic. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your immense, incredible knowledge. Um, That is it for today's show. I'm your host, Amy Wan. Please go ahead and visit the ABA Business Law section and website. You can follow us on social media and subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes or the Google Play Store to listen to our next show. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.